Previously on Unbillable Boston. Do you know who she is? Sarah, are you still with us? I am. <laughs> Melanie Griffith's daughter. She's been in the. Oh my God, she, she was in Fifty Shades of Grey. Yes. yes. She just had a pissy fit with her mother on the red carpet. Yes. yes. You have to understand, Andrea reads feminist, feminist literature and, and people. people. Yeah. She's well-rounded. Serious. What's up, everybody? This is David Yaz, the host of Unbillable Boston. That was last week on the podcast. We had a Mother's Day special. We had a few mothers in the room. Nancy Kremens and Andrea Kramer, Kramer were among the, uh, the voices that you heard. They're both attorneys and past presidents of the Women's Bar Association, Hope you enjoyed that. If you didn't, uh, go back and take a look at unbillableboston.com or just visit thebostonpodcast.com. That's where you'll find all of the shows. You might want to go right now and then come back to this one because we just posted one that is the specific instructions to NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell telling him what to do about the deflate gate scandal and we have a, a scripted detailed way that Goodell can do this and come out of it smelling like a rose so stop what you're doing right now kids and pause this podcast go back to the other one you'll see it right there at uh, the bostonpodcast.com and while you're on that site it'll take you to a, what's called a SoundCloud site if you don't know what that is it's just a place where they host all the podcasts uh, follow us on SoundCloud. Like us, follow us, comment on us, hug us, kiss us, uh, dress us up like little bull peep. No, just kidding. Anyway, uh, this week on the podcast, uh, did I say my name was Dave? I think I did. It's David Yaz. I am uh, an investment advisor and a special needs advisor over at Morgan Stanley. You can always reach me at David, L-Y-A-S, at gmail.com. You could even send me a text. What the heck? Here's my phone number, 781-820-1027. There's a, there it goes, my number, off into the internet. Uh, who knows what kind of spam that will, phone spam that will produce for me. But you know what? I'll risk it. What the heck? We have another great show. So we, we're talking to a lawyer named Howard Cooper, and it may not be quite a household name, but some of the cases he's tried absolutely are, including the libel case against Judge Ernie Murphy several years ago. Pretty much, to my memory, the first time a judge actually successfully sued a newspaper and, and Murphy essentially took down the Boston Herald for more than $2 million. Pretty landmark case. And Howard tells us some stuff that you haven't heard before about that case. He also talks about a case involving a, uh, an Islamic mosque where Howard defended the is Islamic group's right to set up a mosque in Boston. Uh, and the first thing that Howard said to them was, do you realize that I'm Jewish? And they said, yes, that's cool. We think you're a great lawyer. A lot of interesting, though, cultural sort of overtones to that case. And he, he tells us about that and other stuff, too. And you know what? That's enough for me because we've got a great show. And I want to get to it right now. Enjoy it, everybody. See ya. This one's for you, Boston. Boston's a different city than it was 20 years ago. The hope rises again, and the dream lives on. Larry Bird's not walking through that door, fans. The world will return to this great American city to run harder than ever and to cheer even louder. This is our f***ing city. It's our city, it's our town, it's our community, it's our podcast, it's our show, it's our prerogative to tell you that... It's spring, everyone, and I'm happy. I don't know. We're, we're recording this here uh, on a Friday afternoon. The sun is shining. Uh, we're right outside Post Office Square in downtown Boston, and, I mean, this will this will be hard for me to say, but, you know, pretty pretty girls everywhere, and um, I'm sitting across here from my friend Howard Cooper, who I'll introduce you to in a moment. He's, he's smirking slyly. <laughs> This is David Yaz, and welcome back to Unbillable Boston, the podcast that is just of the city of Boston, of the Boston community, uh, of law, of politics, of media, of philanthropy, of everything in between. We talk about the stories behind the stories of what makes a city go, and I'm here with one of the um, most prominent attorneys in the state. And Howard, you're my friend. I used to say that just to sort of uh, you know, lift your ego a little bit. Now, yeah, all of a sudden, it's true. It's it's like the roster of your um, of your cases is it doesn't fit on one page. There are several pages here. But anyway, welcome to the show. How are you? 
It's my pleasure to be here with you. <laughs> okay. You no, know, there's not a trace of sarcasm there, is it? Not at all. Okay. So, um, I mean, it's Friday, and, and Howard barely has his tie loosened, but he deserves it because he just got off a huge case, which um, you were telling me is a major one, and then yet people might have sort of uh, not heard so much about it the last few weeks because the, the Marathon Obama, the Tsarnaev case, took the headlines. But tell us, uh, it's a good place to start. Zenny, tell us a little bit about what case you're working on and, and what stage you're at and all that. Well, it's not over quite yet. Closing right. arguments are on Monday, but it's the case of United States versus Dr. Joseph Zolot. And Dr. Zolot was a pain management physician who the government in its infinite wisdom has decided to charge as a drug dealer for practicing in a very difficult area of people in chronic pain and prescribing opioids to them. It's a case that was tried last summer. The jury was hung, so we've we're just about to finish the retrial. So the allegation is that he, he had uh, painkillers like maybe Oxy and things like that, and he was selling them on the side, or that's the, the allegation? The, the allega if that was the allegation, I could understand the prosecution, but right. no, that's not the allegation. The right. allegation is that um, he was prescribing opioids, including Oxycontin, fentanyl patches, Percocet, and the like, mm to patients who he was actually treating in a pain management practice. Mm -hmm. And the allegation against him is that it was not a legitimate medical practice that he was really acting as a, as a drug dealer. Sounds pretty flimsy. Um, yes, it is. <laughs> that's, that's the opening line of my closing <laughs> argument. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, so, um, <laughs> You speak uh, in a lot of criminal defense. So Howard, by the way, is a partner over at the law firm of Todd, Todd and Weld, uh, a, a Halendor expatriate. Um, and you speak of the government with such bitterness. I don't think I'm exaggerating. Um, and you're, you're proud. You're proud to be a fighter, to, to speak for people who maybe wouldn't otherwise have a strong voice against the government. Don't let me put words into your mouth. You know what? I don't need you. I'm just going to do the rest of the, the, uh, the interview by myself. But, but I just that's sort of to a layperson that might sound really extreme, like, nah, the government did it again. Is that is that part of you? Um, I, I hope not. Yeah. I have uh, many friends who have been or, or some still are prosecutors, and I have a lot of admiration for a lot of what the government does. I'm not anti-government. I will say that um, there are times where uh, the government decides to bring cases where I just fundamentally disagree. My, mm -hmm. my personal opinion of this particular prosecution is that um, my client was just practicing in a very difficult area of medicine and um, it's an alarmist prosecution because Oxycontin is involved and as soon as people hear the word Oxycontin they think of our opioid crisis and they don't think about the millions of Americans who are dealing with chronic pain who can get through the day of only being prescribed opioids and so there's a there's a real social issue in this particular case about um, whether prosecutions like this are going to intimidate doctors out of treating certain portions of the population. When I see something like that, where there is this black-white thinking uh, on the part of the government and a failure to appreciate the subtleties and nuances, it troubles me, mm -hmm. it bothers me. So that is a part of me. Mm -hmm. Can you scooch forward just a sure. little bit, Howard? That's yes. Right. I want people to hear your mellifluous voice. My. <laughs> uh, so. Is this the kind of case that you really get a kick out of? Actually, before you answer that, let's back up. So in, in full disclosure, I've been friends with Howard for a long time. We had sort of an interesting crossing of paths when I was a student at Boston University School of Law. Howard was my research and writing uh, professor, which means he was a, a part-time teacher who had a full-time job as, as a lawyer, and you were over at um, Hale and Dorr at that time with the, the wonderful and delightful Brenda Fingold. The two of you co-taught our, our class. We... Um, I actually learned uh, a great deal from Howard, including how not to sweat the small stuff, even though um, there's plenty of stuff to sweat 
as a lawyer, and um, you told me your advice for my legal career was to go back to summer camp, um, <laughs> it, which you'll remember. It's I've the told best advice that. I've ever given anyone. It's the best advice, and, and little did you know, neither one of us knew, the irony was that I, my camp was your camp, that I was a generation, a uh, short generation behind yours at Camp Tel Noor, which we've mentioned before in the podcast because Jeremy Silver, Silver, Silverfine, thanks Jeremy, Jeremy Silverfine, was a guest on the show, Tel Noor alum. Uh, I'll stop with the silly camp talk, but but um, so but what, I, one I, of the I do want to say that I regard it as one of the high points of anything I've done and legally related is, was to have you as my student. <laughs> That's um, see, you need a new publicist because I would not list that among your career highlights. You have many more, but uh, one thing I really did learn from you was 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 just that that a couple things. One is that. Um, your career as a lawyer is, is going to be a long one and don't worry about you know every little move in the early going you'll find your way and then the other thing is that there are moments um, where you really do make a difference and you had told the story of a, a personal injury suit you had I think on the plaintiff side where a guy had been seriously uh, uh, injured and, and was going to be seriously challenged for the rest of his life and you had won a big case. Do you remember I, that case? I, I do remember. What was the general nature of that one? The case was um, Timothy Foley versus DeLuca Supermarkets, and Timothy Foley was a gentleman. Nice memory. You got the uh, case site on that, too? No, no I, sorry. I, go. I don't. I don't. But we'll talk about the advice I gave you in a minute. Oh, okay. We can do that, too. <clears throat> Timothy Foley was an um, advocate for housing for the disabled during the Dukakis administration, mm-hmm. the first administration, and he himself was... Um, in an electric wheelchair and would get around Boston in his electric wheelchair. And one day as he was going home from his job, he was traveling down Charles Street. There were no curb cuts and the DeLuca's market delivery truck rolled out. The driver was looking over his shoulder in oncoming traffic because it was one way. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately rolled right into Mr. Foley and broke both of his knees. Right. And as a result, he couldn't get up, do some of the things that he could do, like get in and out of bed and up and off the toilet. And uh, tried that case in Suffolk County in front of Judge Rouse to a jury. The jury was out for 15 minutes, as I recall, and gave mm-hmm. him a million and a half dollars. And from my memory, Halendor had that case, and it was a rarity on a contingency fee. Yeah. So for a moment, I was a hero. And when the, when the jury came back and read the verdict, do you remember what it was like at that I, moment? I do. It was during the days of the old motion session. Oh. And it was shortly around 2 o'clock, and there were probably 100 lawyers in the room. And it was an unbelievable moment because um, my client burst out in tears. Mm -hmm. And I remember, and I couldn't even tell you who they were because I was a kid, Mm. but I remember all of these gray-haired members of the bar coming over to me and congratulating me. They didn't have any clue who I was. And telling me, um, uh, you know, what a good job I had done. And and I remember my client... um, who was in really rough shape physically, um, was able to hire a personal care attendant, and he took his son, and they traveled the world together for a year before oh, he passed away. And it was really an unbelievable um, thing to see that you could make a difference to someone like that. So you could have quit right then. You could have quit. You could have gone out on top. But no, you kept going. <laughs> I probably should have. <laughs> so moved on to something else. But no, I didn't. Well, that's not true, and we'll get we'll get to why. But so you were going to say about that that view towards your life and career of, of not sweating every moment, that, that advice you gave, what? Well, I remember you telling me um, as a first-year law student, and I, if I recall correctly, you were thinking about whether you had to have a job in the legal sector exactly. after your first year. Exactly. And you told me you were interested in journalism. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Don't. why not be a journalist? I don't remember and, this and, part. Uh, wow, you're really uh, taking credit for my whole career. No, go ahead, I, go for I, it. I remember telling you that that um, why why bind yourself to do something legally between your first and second year of law school? You should do something that um, you found interesting. I, I actually painted houses between mm. my first and second year of law school, and as tedious as that sounded, I did it with a very good friend of mine, and we usually ended at about one o'clock, and would go to the nearest bar when we were done so it was a great summer mm-hmm. but you should have went back to tell Noah for that one more summer when everyone looks at you weird because you're getting too old I, I don't think they at that point I don't think they would have had me because you of all of the safety violations Jerry Silverfine <laughs> told you about <laughs> you are no longer welcome uh, so 
so that was that was back in the your relatively. I mean, you had you. I think you were uh, no, you were still. That's right. You were still in Hale and Dora in that case. Yeah. But um, on but on and on you went, and and when um, when you left Hale and Dora and started Todd and Weld, which is now known as I don't think I'm exaggerating, one of the premier boutique law firms in the city. Um, was that? Tell me about that moment was that exciting was it did, did you see things becoming different and maybe a different culture my dad was a solo practitioner in Boston for 40 years before he passed away and and uh, one of the things I saw growing up was he always did things his way mm -hmm. um, didn't work for anybody else I remember um, going with him to to watch him try a six-person jury case in the criminal session in Waltham District Court. Did he have a where was his practice here in Boston? Fifteen Court Square. Okay, sure. And uh, uh, I remember distinctly that um, his he was representing a person of color, and I remember him telling me that that he wasn't getting paid, mm. but he believed that it was a theft case, and I believe it was the son of a longtime client, and. Um, uh, he was actually a very quiet guy. I watched him turn into Superman that day, and I really? thought it was the most exciting thing I ever saw. So fair to say that that you wanted to emulate your dad. Yeah, I, mean, I think that I he he was the one adult I saw growing up who seemed to genuinely love what he did. He was always excited. I loved listening to his stories about cases and clients, and it always seemed like it was something new. Mm -hmm. And. Um, the people who he would represent came from all walks of life. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking how cool it was that he just seemed comfortable with people who were, whether they were rich or poor or white or black or, or immigrants or whatever. Um, you know, he had started his office in his three-family house in Dorchester and then moved into Boston and um, had the same clientele for, type of clientele for 40-something years. I just thought it was great. I'd say your uh, bucket is is almost probably half full, maybe a little bit more full. We'll find out more about Howard Cooper's uh, bucket when we come back. We're going to hear a lot about his cases. Howard has represented judges in landmark cases. He's represented casinos, pro athletes, and more. So stick with us here on Unbillable Boston, and we'll hear more. We'll and we'll take your phone calls, texts, and emails. No, actually, we won't do that. We're a podcast. I was only kidding. <laughs> Stay with us. Unbillable Boston. This is Mark Freiberger of Freiberger and Wyshenko, and you are listening to Unbillable Boston. <laughs> and welcome back to Unbillable Boston. This is David Yaz, your host. I'm with uh, Morgan Stanley, by the way. I'm an investment planner and special needs planner. And uh, if you ever want to talk to me about that, why don't you, uh, you know, shoot me an email or give me a call? How about that? Uh, uh, David.yas at morganstanley.com, 781-820-1027. Now, Howard Cooper, I ask you, have you ever heard a podcast host give out his own personal cell phone number? All I can say is that anyone listening should bring your business to David Yaz, as my go. firm does, because he does an excellent job. How about that? Oh, my goodness. To save, uh, uh, I'm speaking to some unseen producer. Save that clip for later. Um, so it's, we're, we're talking to Howard from a partner at the law firm of Todd and Weld, and the uh, architect of um, uh, of a vast number of prominent cases and just very interesting cases throughout the years. Um, but as we sit here now, um, as I always say, you know, we record the podcast and then we release it on a date when we feel like it. So, um, but as we sit here today, this, this deflate gate thing is still going on. And I thought, uh, Howard, you're, you're a man of justice. You're, you're a fighter. You're an advocate. Do you feel bad for Tom Brady in this Kafka-esque nightmare of, of, of wild <laughs> accusations that he's in the middle of? It's kind of hard to feel bad for Tom Brady about anything. Fair given, point. Given, given his extraordinary success and pretty much everything else that he has going for him. So, yeah. No, I don't feel bad for Tom Brady. I, I, I do feel badly that um, the rest of the country outside of New England is somehow going to throw this in everybody's face for the, yeah. the rest of all of our natural lives. Um, and it's always a shame mm -hmm. uh, you know, when you 
have people who you think of these heroic sports figures, and by the way, that's all they are, is right. sports figures. Yeah, they're athletes. Um, you know, be accused of or be found uh, to have cheated. On a personal level, I had been a great admirer of Lance Armstrong, and not that these things equate to each other at all, but I just remember how devastating I felt, and I was probably, you know, in the camp of forgiving Lance and believing him for as long as anyone yeah. would or could just because of uh, what we all believed he'd accomplished in I, his life. You know, I, I feel sympathetic towards him, too, and as much as he didn't defend himself very well, he's a human. And actually, I think there is a common thread, because I think Brady is being accused of something, I think, a lot more minuscule. But, Clearly. But, but, right, but both he and Armstrong appeared very defensive when they had to defend themselves when accused of these things, and that to me is human nature. You know, oh, Brady's right. standing up there. In, uh, this is I'm, talking, I'm referring to his original press sure. conference. This thing, and he didn't come off very well. But you know, when the first you go up there confident, I'm just going to tell the truth. The first couple questions come by, you handle them. By the time the seventh or eighth question hits, you start to sound like you're making things up. Isn't that just human nature? Well. And Tom Brady has made his living throwing footballs yeah. and handing them off and not holding press conferences. Yeah. So. Although I think he's a future politician, but who knows? We'll see. <laughs> well, we'll yeah, see. and I could go on for, for hours on that, but I, I think that the, I'll say the short version of it. The, the thing that's troubling to me about the whole thing is I fear as a society we've lost our sense of nuance. In other words, rule is broken, you're a cheater, period. You're out clearly a cheater, clearly a, a nefarious character. And to the point where we forget what they were, what the original action was. And this is a, a tortured comparison, but um, President Clinton was called a liar. Well, what was he lying about? He was lying about a marital infidelity. Now, I think I'm not excusing it away, but I think it's more of a natural uh, response to lie about a marital infidelity, and far different, I would think, than maybe some matter of national security that he was lying about. But the lie became so huge. And I still don't know if Brady is lying, but at some level, I don't care. We People, I think we've lost our minds. We've forgotten that they're talking about slightly deflating a football. I mean, it's just, it, it, this was a, this was a, a plus 200 page. The, the report was nearly one-third the length of the Warren Commission report on the, on the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> Did we really need that? Well, the notion that we had a hugely prominent law firm and hugely prominent yeah. lawyers spending millions of dollars to talk about Tom Brady's deflated balls is <laughs> really... Um, Troubling and thank I'm, you. In, I'm in your camp. Thank you. I don't you. care. Somebody finally said it. Thank I don't you. care. Good. Move on. Yeah, let's move on with our lives. Give him a fine. Just give him a fine. By now, listeners already know what happened. I hope it wasn't horrible. Anyway, so um, Howard, over the you've become a champion to judges, and I think uh, maybe maybe we'll talk about this before anything else because I. I I personally followed this very closely because I was at Lawyers Weekly on the time, and, and in full disclosure, I, I wrote stories about this case. I interviewed you, Howard, and, and I'm talking about the Judge Ernie Murphy case, and to give the really quick backstory, uh, there was a, a case, there was a rape case, and the Boston Herald came out with a story suggesting, well, really stating, that Judge Murphy had said of a rape victim, she's 16, 17? 13. 13. Really? 14. 14. 14. <laughs> it's one of those. Um, but the point is, that the quote was, she's 14, she got raped, she has to get over it. That might not be the exact quote, but that was the spirit of it. Tell her to get over Tell it. Tell her to get over it? Right. Tell her to get over Tell it. Tell her to get over it. And as the story was reported, Murphy said that perhaps uh, as leaving while he was leaving the bench, perhaps in a bench conference in his chambers, perhaps who knows... Um, the details as reported by the Herald um, sort of start to change over time and and Murphy insisted he never said it. The Herald insisted they had a few quotes. Um, long story short, it led to a libel case brought on behalf of Judge Murphy by Howard Cooper, which um, seemed a Herculean task at the time because proving libel is very hard and yet you won the case. A $2.1 million jury verdict which I think, as I wrote at the time, sounded like a thunderclap in the legal community. That's just good writing. Right? Very good writing. <laughs> so um, now, after my whole spiel about this case and its significance, tell me, I mean, what what do you remember most about it? Do you remember you remember the moment where it came to you? Do you was there a moment where you realized this could be uh, something special? 
Well, probably the first thing to mention is that um, I was not close to being Ernie Murphy's first or even 21st desired counsel. I think he'd been to see two dozen different lawyers or so before uh, he tumbled on my phone number. (laughs) And I happened to be out of the country in Bogota, Colombia, um, adopting my youngest daughter. and I had been following all of this by You just email. buried the lead, by the way, because that because you've told me stories about adopting your daughter, oh, we'll, and we'll she's wonderful, and we'll, we'll get we'll, to that. We'll come back to that. But wait, before you do, I can't help but recall in the movie Philadelphia where uh, Tom uh, Denzel Washington says to Tom Hanks, I wasn't your first choice as a lawyer, uh, was I? He says, no. He said, how many did you go to? He said, nine. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's what happened. Well, er- Ernie had been um, to see a number of people who uh, he would have well believed were far more qualified than me but I had known him we had had co-defendants in a case a year or two earlier and when these stories broke in the Herald um, and they accused him on the front page for multiple days in a row with his picture and bold headlines like Murphy's Law and the like um, I just had a really hard time believing they were true given what I knew about him he had told me about his work with um, lawyers concerned for lawyers and how he was a, at that point a you know 25 plus year recovering alcoholic and substance abuser, and I knew from people who had been in front of him that um, he had developed a reputation amongst the defense lawyers of being a very compassionate judge, mm-hmm. and so it didn't fit, and so I sent him a note. And I said he was no. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you said he was a recovering alcoholic. Is that yes. correct? And he was known. I don't think I'm overstating still, still this. Still is. Still is, of course. Yeah. Um, uh, had an alcohol problem in the past, and he was known as someone who was extremely sympathetic to people yes. who had those. Exactly. Of okay. There had been some guidelines that had come out to judges uh, within the preceding decade about taking into account. Um, alcohol and drug diversion opportunities for people who were presented on bail or at sentencing. Mm. He took that to heart very seriously, did not win friends in DA's offices for doing so. But again, to me, when I had read the newspaper and what people were saying about him, I just had a hard time believing that he would make those remarks. So I sent him a note, and it was something to the effect of... um, you know, hang in there. I don't. I, I for one, don't believe Is that right? everything that I read. And I remember him getting in touch with me. And the first call that I had with him, um, he was completely broken up. He had has five daughters. Someone had blogged online that you know directions to his home suggesting that one of his daughters be raped. He had received a death threat under the door of his chambers with a target on the front page of the Herald saying, you know, you get over it, you bastard, you're dead. And it had to contact the state police. And it just sounded like a nightmare. And um, again, his having been to a number of lawyers who explained to him with good cause, you know, what bringing a libel suit as a public official um, meant, um, uh, you know, he asked me if I would talked to him when I got back home, and I did, and um, it was one of those opportunities where uh, this was a a guy who was in need. He was in need of a lawyer and in need of a friend and in need of someone who was going to take it seriously, and the one thing that that, um, my firm decided to do was before really taking on the case, we decided that we were going to go down to Fall River and New Bedford and talk to anybody and everybody who would talk to us to see whether it was true or not. Meaning people in the DA's office? The people in the DA's office, other than the then DA Paul Walsh, weren't really willing to talk to us. But um, one of your former colleagues who had left the the, um, Bristol DA's office, David David Frank. Frank, Judge David Frank. Judge David Frank, who was then, had moved to Suffolk, I believe, um, was willing to talk to us. He was the prosecutor in the case. He right? was the prosecutor in one of the two cases right. where this could have happened. Right. But we talked to all the defense lawyers. We talked to all of the clerks. We talked to all of the probation folks, and uniformly, they reported that um, Ernie Murphy had been very compassionate towards the victim, and that the statement that was made was to the effect 
this poor young girl is 14. She's been raped. Are there counseling services available for oh, her? Oh, good Lord. And so it seemed like, um, and then, by the way, we also learned that the Bristol DA's office had been keeping a scoreboard, literally, yeah. of Judge Murphy's um, bail and sentencing decisions. And um, it sounded like something had got lost in the translation between what he had said and how it had arrived on the front page of the Boston Herald. So um, after really a very thorough pre-complaint investigation, um, it seemed to me that the it, it just was a mistake. It couldn't possibly be that it was like a game of the worst game of telephone ever like it was a comment that got repeated the wrong way and And by the time it got to um, the front page of the Herald it had just been tortured and it had really created a problem for Judge Murphy so to me um, I knew the lawyers for the Herald very fine lawyers uh, in particular Bob Dushman may he rest in peace he's unfortunately passed passed away away. Um, very good person very good lawyer so I went to see him on Judge Murphy's behalf, and I said, you know, look look at all these affidavits. You've got to change the story. You've got to fix it. And um, for whatever their reason, the Herald was unwilling to do anything. They stood by their reporter, David Wedge, and um, we filed a libel suit. And uh, I'll spare you all the details, but ultimately um, the case was tried. It was presided over by uh, Judge Charles Johnston, who was the chief of the BMC at the time. Because Judge Murphy was on the Superior Court, and Judge Johnson uh, used to have spectacular dreadlocks. I don't know if he still does. He, he I believe, he still does. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, and he had those spectacular dreadlocks um, back then. Mm-hmm. Um, Judge Murphy took the witness stand. Uh, David Frank was prominently uh, featured at the trial. Well, so the jury came back after a, a I don't know two or three week trial with a couple million dollars. Um, it was. Uh, You know, I mentioned the Foley case. I remember vividly uh, Ernie Murphy and his wife and kids in tears in the courtroom. And uh, I wasn't there, but I was told shortly thereafter by him about how he, when he walked into the next Superior Court Judicial Conference um, somewhere in Massachusetts, he was given a standing ovation. Yeah. And this was a guy who felt like he was being um, ostracized and shunned after the reporting. Um, I try not to talk about or mention everything that happened after that, other than the fact that the SJC affirmed the verdict and ultimately it was paid. Judge, uh, Judge Murphy had some inelegant <laughs> moments in, in, in insisting that the Herald pay his verdict. I guess we can leave it at that. We yes. could go into it, but uh, time does not permit. Yeah. Yes. But the, so, uh, the, the verdict was ultimately paid. The verdict, the entire verdict was paid and then the herald was on the verge of bankruptcy thanks to you thanks a lot howard (laughs) who was was supposed to be a two paper town uh we barely were barely in any paper town but um the (laughs) but no the herald did not go out of business they stuck i mean the uh was the is it fair to say that the herald's um and this is this is a journalism thing i can tell you being in journalism for 15 years that um the idea of uh being tough and reporting the tough stories in the face of uh, considerable opposition. And so when you dig in your heels, you, you want to dig in your heels. You want to say, this is a difficult thing to report, but we have to report it. Now, of course, in this case, they were reporting something that was inaccurate. Was, was their stubbornness and their continuing to re- was it they're continuing to repeat what they had reported? And Dave Wedge going on the O'Reilly report and sort of ripping into was that what helped? Was that what drove, uh, ultimately led you to success? I think it was a huge part of it. I mean, there was a certain sensationalistic aspect of the reporting by the time David Wedge went on the O'Reilly factor, which really made the story a national and international story, right. uh, with mail arriving in Judge Murphy's chambers from you know overseas. Um, you know, brutally attacking him. Yeah. Um, and, and frankly, some of the best evidence that we had was the interview of David Wedge by Bill O'Reilly. And um, David Wedge was asked, how do you know he said it? What are your sources? And he, I, I'll never forget it. He said, he said it, he knows he said it. We have three people that heard him, said it, heard him mm-hmm. say it. Right. And at trial, there weren't three people that heard him say it. In fact, um, and 
out of respect for the poor young assistant DA who, uh, not David Frank, right. who ultimately was identified as the source, what apparently had happened is that in a lobby conference, that statement that I mentioned, which was a compassionate statement, by the time the young ADA got back to his office and conferred with his bosses, including Paul Walsh and uh, 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 Mr. Fitzgerald, and um, I won't remember everybody's names no, at this right. point. No, going back um, ways now. It had, begun, it had become a story to give a reporter who was willing to print it. And, yeah, and, and I don't want to excuse, I don't know who this young prosecutor was, but that was the, the culture of that office was Judge Murphy was an enemy. He is a defendant-friendly yes. judge. And if you want to be part of our gang, we got, we're, we're, we're going to throw the occasional dagger at uh, Judge Murphy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, um, and you won the case. What do you? I guess real quick, first of all, one footnote. Um uh, I think I've told you this, Howard, but I, I wrote the story for Lawyers Weekly that, uh, and I went back, back through all the deposition tran- uh, testimony, and David Wedge, the reporter, came off as very indignant and sort of unfeeling to, to Judge Murphy, and wrote the story. Um, and uh, but you know, I did not call the Herald directly, and I admit, I in hindsight, I think that was a mistake because. At Lawyers Weekly, what we used to do is we called the lawyers on each side, and and the lawyers speak for the clients. That's the Lawyers Weekly way, and that's what the lawyers do. And so I talked to uh, Bob Duchman, and um, you know he, he, he defended his client, and I put it in the story. When the story came out, there were many people at the Herald who called me not too happy, and and just um, just ripped me up and down. And uh, I later had a possible opportunity to work with, or perhaps even for the Herald. And uh, I think once somebody found the article that I wrote in the past, and that squashed that opportunity, <laughs> which is fine. It's okay. I, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword. But I don't know. You might be happy to know that I've since made peace with Dave Wedge. I've seen him sort of socially, and um, he actually, to his credit, he, you know, he's 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 a he's a hardline reporter type, and he he. I think he sort of understood that that what with in his line of work, he could understand if he if he took a, a beating in the press. And he actually has what I understand is a pretty successful book about the, about the Boston Strong and about the, the marathon bombing. So uh, we've been trying to get him on the podcast. So uh, Dave Wedge, uh, call me, man. We still want you on. So the, one of the other cases, and, and Howard, I'm looking at a, a voluminous list of, of interesting cases you've tried, but the one about the mosque, and I remember this one too, we're probably going back uh, five or six years or so. And... Um, uh, an effort by a Muslim group to bring a mosque to Boston, and it raised all kinds of issues of you know racism and, and uh, not racism, but um, what's the valid Islamophobia? The Islamophobia, I suppose, right? And tell us who you represented in that case and what you remember about it. Um, well, I have a distinct memory of the entire experience, but I represented the Islamic Society of Boston and several of its trustees. The um, there were a group of people who had come here in the uh, 80s to go to school at Harvard and MIT and um, as Muslims from Egypt and Saudi Arabia and a number of other countries there really was no mosque in the Cambridge area for them to pray in at the time so they started the Cambridge Mosque um, in an old VFW uh, building and as the Muslim community grew in the greater Boston area. Um, they led an effort, even having returned home to their various countries, to um, raise money to build a mosque on some distressed land that they had purchased from the BRA adjacent to Roxbury Community College. And um, as they were uh, funding and, and uh, raising money, and the structural steel was actually up, there began to appear a series of newspaper articles in the Boston Herald and stories on Fox TV that the entire effort was a front for the Muslim Brotherhood and worse, and that um, you know essentially Osama bin Laden was making his way to Boston. Yeah. Yeah. And needless to say, um, that had a very substantial impact on the on the project. This was uh, post 9/11 or pre 9/11. Post 9/11. It's post 9/11, but yes. Obama is still uh, Obama. Oh, God. I'm not the first person to make that mistake, but Osama bin Laden was, was still at, alive. In Correct. Yeah. 
And literally, in some of the Herald articles, there was a photograph of the structural steel of the mosque mm -hmm. juxtaposed next to a picture of Osama bin Laden, whom no one knew where he was at Lovely. the time. Right. And um, it was uh, really troubling. Uh, I, I was asked to, be, um, to review the case to see what could be done. Um, and it was a very interesting moment for me because when I got a call from uh, this group and met with them, the first thing I said was, um, do you know I'm Jewish? And they said, <laughs> they said to me, is that a problem for you? Right. And it kind of stopped me cold in my tracks. And I said, you know, no, it really isn't. I, I just wanted you to know that. And they said, well, it's not a problem for us. And I actually got to know these folks and they, you know, they were... Uh, the leaders of a of really the most recent immigrant community to come here in large numbers, and they seem to be on the receiving end of a lot of um, hatred that you know my forebears went through, and many other minority communities went through, whether Irish or Italian or whatever it happened to be. And but um, but, but what a moment because it's 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 flipped right. So they absolutely. asked. They, so you said to them, you should know that I'm Jewish. What were you thinking? Were you thinking, will I be able to be a zealous advocate for this client, given the cultures? Right? I, I have to say that I just thought it was important that they know that, and um, uh, I was completely misguided in whether it was even a factor to them, and it was important, I guess, in my own mind. Um, but, but it didn't trouble you that you, 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 you might, even though... Um, you know, generalizations be damned, you'd be, you know, in some ways symbolically riding against your your people. Well, it wasn't even symbolic because what ended up happening is Discovery proceeded initially with the Glo the uh, Herald and the Fox News. Um, seven boxes of documents arrived at my office and when I opened them I was frankly um, sick to my stomach because the people who were the sources for all of these stories were in my opinion, a fringe element of my own faith community. Not that I'm uh, terribly religious, but you know, yeah. it was certain right-wing groups yeah. in the Jewish community, super who, orthodox, right? Yeah, right. who had the Orwellian yeah. names of you know Citizens for Peace and Tolerance and the like. Um, it goes they, to show you every, every religion has its uh, fringe element, right? And and it was challenging in that regard. Mm. They they ended up. Um, had an array of law firms from Boston and Washington and New York uh, involved in the case, and uh, uh, it became a very, very intense exercise. To me, it was as simple as this. This was a new immigrant group that was trying to build a place of worship in the United States mm -hmm. of America, and they had every right to do it. And there were there were ugly things being said about them. And there were ugly things being some said about them. Yeah. And there were a lot of very well-heeled individuals on the other side who um, did not want to see this particular group franchised in our yeah. country. And read into it, but what you will. But there were prominent Jewish lawyers on both sides of the case. Was I seem to remember Max Stern being involved? Was he on your side of the case? He was. He was. And then uh, David Bunis, who's a friend of mine. Um, and a great guy, and another great guy, and happens to be Jewish. He was on the other side, yes. and I remember he, him, uh, he, he telling me that, um, you know, it's, it did sort of stoke his fires in terms of his people. But, um, you know, to me, um, you know, I've always thought that the ultimate lawyer, who's, uh, and you've been in both the civil and, and criminal arenas, uh, criminal arenas, Howard, but. Um, you know, it, it's is. Would you agree that lawyers take the greatest degree degree of pride in representing someone who maybe no one else would stand up for? Absolutely, right? absolutely. I mean, um, you know, when Jay Carney represents Whitey Bulger, I think that speaks to all of us. It or John Salvi. Or John Salvi. It goes yeah. back to John Adams representing the the British soldiers during the Boston, Boston Massacre. Master, yeah. It's what we're it's what we're supposed to do. Mm. And, you know, it it was helpful to me on a personal level in this particular instance that I happen to genuinely like and believe um, the group of people who I was representing. They, they were not terrorists. They were local people. I mm. remember talking to a young woman who was on the 
very involved in the organization who had been, you know, grown up in Brookline and had gone to Brookline High School and who was telling me because she wore, you know, a scarf that, you know, the type of treatment that she could expect on a daily basis at the time she was at Harvard Divinity School. I still consider this person to be a friend mm. and she's someone totally dedicated to interfaith dialogue and relations. And by the way, if it had been up to David Bunis and I, the case would have settled about a week after it was brought. Is that right? Yes. And, uh, you know, David was um, very open uh, to dialogue and thinking through what were complex issues. Unfortunately, um, the overwhelming number of folks on the other side didn't feel that way, and it became um, very much, you know, uh, the, uh, as I said, from my perspective, right-wing Jewish community versus um, the local Muslim community. So what, I don't think you said this, what was the result of the case? Ultimately, the case was resolved through a settlement. Okay. And what, what had happened was the first case that was actually brought was brought by a fellow by the name of Paula Castro against the Roxbury Community College, the BRA, to take the land back. Mm -hmm. And the complaint that had been filed by Evan Slavitt um, said that the transfer of the land to a religious organization violated the separation of church and state. And in this instance, they said it was the particular brand of Islam, allegedly Wahhabi Islam, that was the problem. We actually won summary judgment on that case mm -hmm. before Nancy Staffier Holtz, um, a lawyer by the name of Al Farah in Boston, was the lead counsel, did a fabulous job. And once that happened, it sort of set the table of, okay, we're going to be able to, the, the folks are going to be able to keep the land, they're going to be able to keep the project going. And by the way, it was like the 19th transfer mm -hmm. of land to a religious organization. No one had ever complained about, you know, a Baha'i temple or a church or a synagogue before. It was only when the Muslims were getting the land that it was a problem. Um, once that happened, everybody basically agreed to go back to their corners and leave each other alone. Mm -hmm. I will tell you in the last five years um, I have had an ongoing relationship with the Roxbury Mosque. Um, there was uh, things that needed to be done after the Marathon bombing where um, it turned out that the older Tsarnaya brother had at one point worshipped at the Cambridge Mosque. Right. Um, it took a little while to get the rest of the story out which was he had become belligerent and had been thrown out of the mosque for saying some crazy things. There was a few years ago a visit by the uh, eighth grade class, I believe it was, from the Wellesley School District, where the, it was advertised by several of the same people who had brought the Paula Castro lawsuit, because what we ultimately learned in discovery was they had looked to find a plaintiff with a non-Jewish sounding name to bring mm -hmm. this case as part of the attack on the mosque. Mm -hmm. um, uh, sent someone in with the Wellesley School visit to secretively film uh, the visit and altered the video such that it looked like there had been a session where the leader of the of the tour was explaining and proselytizing and then several of the students stood up to pray mm -hmm. and it created this outroar about yeah. the proselytizing radical mosque in Cambridge which was completely fabricated. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's an ongoing it's an ongoing thing, and it's yeah. an it's an important thing. And you know, from my perspective, um, how we welcome and treat the latest immigrant group in our society is yeah. a reflection on all of us. And yeah. while I'm not naive, and no one should be naive, that there are radical elements mm -hmm. in all groups, and that we need to be concerned about that. Um, you know, bringing the bringing a world of hurt down on on a whole entire group who's just trying to build a place of worship is not right. Uh, and we're running short of time here, Howard, but did you see uh, uh, a couple years ago, or maybe it was last year, Super Bowl ad for, I believe, Coca-Cola, but if I'm wrong, um, I'll correct myself. Uh, it was uh, America the Beautiful sung by different um, people from different uh, nationalities in different languages so you would hear mm -hmm, mm -hmm, but in Japanese and in Chinese and in Spanish and um, 
seemed to me a perfectly nice ad and sort of very American. Like we all came from someplace else. We all spoke a different language, and here we are. Remember this I by your face, recall. maybe. I think but so. it, it just it, it became very ugly because it immediately injected you know Twitter and everything else. People saying, you know what, the America the Beautiful is is sung in English. You should learn English. And it was just an ama- amazing that that much xenophobia was still around. Some people even said, you how can you sing the national anthem in in a different language? <laughs> to which people say, you know. Uh, Actually, that's not the national anthem. That's American the Beautiful. Right. It's a different song. Um, so, Howard, we got to run, but and you've been tremendous, and uh, I thank you for your time and all that. Um, you have a charity that you're passionate about. Tell us about that before we go. It's the Alliance for Children Foundation, based in Needham. Um, I met them 15 years or so ago when they were sued over a couple of international adoptions that um, had not gone well from some orphanages in Romania. I ended up going to Romania as part of the case, and uh, as a result of all of that, uh, my wife and I decided to adopt our youngest daughter from Bogota, Colombia. Thank goodness. What's your daughter's name? Sarah. And how old is she now? She's 13. She, like you, is a, a passionate musician. She, she's ta- she's actually I'll correct you. She's a talented musician, from what you told me off the air. Um, I might be a music enthusiast, but yeah. So, but you were telling me. So she plays what? She plays. She plays the cello, the piano, the drums, and she sings. Oh my goodness! And this week her hair is red. Last week it was blue, and so only because she does not share my DNA, she actually has some talent. So look out, Lady Gaga. That's that's great. That's great. So what? Do you happen to know if people want to? Uh, get to uh, learn about this charity or, or, or uh, contribute? Do you know where they go? Or They go on the um, internet and just plug in Alliance for Children Foundation. This is an yep. organization that raises money to support infrastructure and services for the kids who don't get adopted from the orphanages. Generally speaking, once a child turns three or four years old, um, internationally, families don't want to adopt them because they're just too old. So they end up growing up in the orphanage, and the idea here is to um, give them uh, uh, the best possible um, place to live um, in China, where there's a huge program They've and a shortage of housing. They've actually set up apartment buildings where young Chinese couples will come in, and given the one-child rule, will take five or six of these kids, and they'll raise them as a family. And uh, it's a it's a remarkable organization. It's run by a woman named Phyllis Casey who's been doing this work for almost 40 years, and she's a remarkable person. I'm glad uh, you could plug it on our show here. So uh, please, uh, one more time, the name of the organization is? The Alliance for Children Foundation. The Alliance for Children Foundation, and Google it and check it out. And uh, Howard, we're so grateful you being here. My pleasure. Uh, Howard Cooper over at the law firm of Todd and Weld. Is it? ToddWeld.com. Do you know what it your is. own website? That's it. it? ToddWeld.com. Uh, All right. If you read Howard Cooper's bio on ToddWeld.com, it is it's better than anything you're ever going to read today. There are twists and turns. He once sued Sammy Hagar. I'll never forgive you for that, uh, Howard. But he, but he resolved the case. And, 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 I can't uh, drive and 55. He can't drive. Uh, Sammy Hagar couldn't drive 55 after he had to deal with Howard Cooper. Anyways, thanks so much. Uh, Unbillable Boston is the show. Stay with us. Thanks, everybody.